0: You didn't know every year there are polls taken to determine which are the most liked and the most disliked of government agencies. And every year, it seems that at the top of the list, the same ones, the Postal Service, the CDC, and NASA at the top of the list, consistently. And then, toward the bottom of the list, consistently, every year, you guessed it, is IRS. Because no one likes paying taxes. I remember the first time that I had a job, a a paying job, a regularly paying job, when I was going to receive a paycheck, Every other Friday. And I remember anxiously and excitedly the first time that that first paycheck was gonna be mine at the end of the workday on Friday. And I was anticipating how much I was gonna get and what I was gonna spend because I had carefully calculated my hours. And then when I received the check, I looked at it and I said, wait a minute, somebody made a mistake. (laughs) Nobody warned me about the taxes. And I learned then that no one likes paying taxes. And yet, beloved, though we may not like it, taxes we pay. We pay income taxes. We pay pay state taxes, we pay property taxes, county taxes, luxury taxes, for those of you who have such luxuries. No one, no one, no one escapes paying taxes. You don't escape paying taxes today. They didn't escape paying taxes in the Bible either, beloved. So don't feel so bad. This has always been the case. And Jesus and his disciples were subject to taxes. And no one liked it. No one liked it. In fact, in fact, the enemies of Jesus thought that they could use taxes and the pain of taxes as a means to undermine And trap and even kill Jesus. It seems, it seems the idea of using taxes to undermine your opponents is not something new. They came to Jesus and wanted to see his tax returns, that's not new. In order to do this, beloved, what they desired to do was to set a trap. we are going to set a trap for Jesus, this undercover trap. Now, it's important to understand a little context here as we've been going through the Gospel of Luke. And in this portion of Luke, remember that Jesus now is in Jerusalem. He's in Jerusalem because now the cross is before him, and he had been making his way to Jerusalem, and he had told his disciples, remember early on, they had told his disciples, okay, boys, now it's time to go to Jerusalem because in going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be crucified. There I am going to die, but there I am going to be raised again. The cross was before him, but the resurrection was coming. Now, he told his disciples this clearly, but his disciples didn't comprehend this. And the reason they didn't comprehend this, beloved, is because all they saw were the crowds. How could this possibly be true with all these people gathering with us? So they assume we're going to Jerusalem to take over. We're going to Jerusalem to establish a new thing. And by the time they had come, we saw how they had left Jericho and the crowds were gathering. And by the time they had left Jericho and they had gotten to Jerusalem, these crowds were large. Larger and larger. And the noise, the noise around Jesus was getting louder and louder. And as Jesus approached Jerusalem, he was riding on a donkey. And you remember what they shouted in Luke chapter 19, just a little bit back. You look and you see in chapter 19, verse 38. As he approached Jerusalem on this donkey and these large crowds are now following him, they say, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus had come into Jerusalem to be Crucified. The crowds are gathering around him to crown him. Wow. Now you can imagine that when the Pharisees heard this, when the rulers in Jerusalem heard this chance of a new king, chance of one who's coming in the name of the Lord. They were not at all pleased with this. And Jesus didn't help the cause, beloved, because as soon as he got into Jerusalem, what did he do? He went into the temple, and he went into the temple, and he started kicking people out the temple. And the chief chief priests were not pleased with this either, but then Jesus didn't stop there. Read back in chapter 19, after he kicked people out the temple, then he began to preach and teach in the temple. And he taught and he preached with more authority and understanding than the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees could ever have. And the people were listening and the people were following and the chief priests and the, pri- and, the and, and the priests and the, and the scribes and the elders, the Bible says, were personally offended by what Jesus was teaching. Things were getting out of hand. Things were getting out of hand. Jesus was on the offense, and many were being offended. And they wanted Jesus gone. This is it. They wanted him gone. They wanted Jesus out the way. They wanted Jesus dead. And so you see in chapter 20 and verse 19, the Bible says that they wanted to lay hands on Jesus. They wanted to lay hands on him. Not the hands of healing, they wanted to lay hands of hurting. Not their hands to anoint him with oil. No, beloved, they were going to anoint Jesus with pain. And yet, interesting thing, is that the Jewish authorities didn't want to do this themselves. They didn't want the people to accuse them of undermining Jesus. And so they... Plotted and they planned, and they hatched the scheme. They developed an undercover mission. The Bible says that they sent spies. They sent agents, secret agents, to go undercover among Jesus' disciples. Now, beloved, you can't make this up. They sent spies to go in undercover Amongst Jesus' disciples. This, this is the CIA stuff. FBI, MI6, 007, and J. Eckerd Hoover, Mississippi burning type of stuff. They had Jesus, they had folks tailing Jesus. Surveillance. Wiretaps. And these spies were given a mission, right? You see that in verse 20. They were to keep close watch on him. I'm not making this up, man. They were to keep close watch on him. They were the surveillance. They were to keep watch on him, listening, recording. And when given the opportunity, they were to try to catch Jesus saying something he shouldn't say so they can report him to the police. That's something straight out of J. Edgar Hoover's files. <laughs> they were disguised as disciples. Disguised as disciples. They looked like disciples. They spoke like disciples. They dressed like disciples. But they were not disciples. But This is what the enemy does, beloved. It's what the enemy does. He poses himself as a sheep. But he's really a wolf in sheep's clothing. This is what the enemy does. He shows up as an angel of light, when actually he's an agent of darkness. This is what Satan does. This is who he is. And when he comes, when he comes, the Bible reminds us that he comes with flattery. Flattery on his lips and deception in his heart. Why? Because he wants you and I to think much of ourselves so that we don't think much of God. Think much of ourselves so we don't think much of God. Give much attention to ourselves so that we don't give proper honor, glory, and due to God. And that's what the spies did when they came undercover amongst these disciples, isn't it? They come to Jesus in verse 21. What do they say? Teacher, teacher, we know that you speak and teach what is right. And that you do not show partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You know what they thought they were going to do? They thought they were going to appeal to Jesus' pride. But, beloved, there was no pride in Jesus. They thought they were going to appeal to Jesus' conceit. But there was no conceit in Jesus. The reason why, beloved, this is important to understand. The reason why Satan is so successful, often successful in our lives, is because he has so much to work with. He appeals to our pride. Why? Because we have so much of it. He appeals to our anger. He appeals to our lust. He appeals to our conceit. He appeals to our grief. He appeals to our impatience. And all of this and more he finds when he comes and he tempts us. But you know what the Bible says? What happened when Satan came and tempted Jesus? The Bible says he found nothing in him. There was nothing he can get a hook on. So when they spoke this about Jesus, they spoke truth. Yes, 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 Jesus spoke the truth. When they said Jesus showed no partiality, they were right. Jesus showed no partiality. When they say Jesus taught the way of God, yes, they were right. Jesus taught the way of God. They thought by flattering him and getting a hook in him that they would trip him up. Get him distracted. Get him distracted. Get him listening to his own music. Get him drinking his own Kool-Aid. And after they spoke those words, thinking they had laid the trap, got him distracted from the main mission, got him thinking about himself more than thinking about God, got him more impressed with what he was doing rather than what God had called him to. Then they asked the real question. They asked the question, They put the bait in and they set the trap. Verse 22. Knowing you know all these things, knowing you're so righteous and so good and so holy, is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? From all these people, is it right Jesus to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Beloved, listen, there is nothing but deceit and deception in this question. Jesus knew it. He knew they were not sincere. They knew they were not sincere. Jesus knew that they knew that they were not sincere. He perceived, the Bible says, he perceived their underhandedness. He recognized their intentional trickery. He knew that they were agents of the enemy. He understood and recognized that they were dishonest. He recognized the craftiness of the enemy in their voices. He had seen this before. As somebody said recently, Phil, same devil, just a different level. (laughs) Same devil, just a different level. This is the same trick Satan has been pulling from the beginning. This is the craftiness with which he deceived Eve in the beginning. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 11, and, and verse 3 That this is the craftiness, this is the deception with which Eve was tripped up. This was not going to be the deception that Jesus falls for. Jesus understood the, the sinfulness, the, the deceitfulness of sin, as the Bible calls it. The devil is counting on us not knowing just how deceitful it is. It causes us to deceive ourselves. It causes us to deceive others. But, beloved, what they didn't realize is that there is no deceiving God. They may have fooled the other disciples, but they did not fool Jesus. It says in verse 23 that he perceived Their craftiness. Our Lord knows the heart, beloved. He knows the heart. He knows the intent and desires of the heart. He knows the questions we ask. He knows the questions we want to ask but don't. He knows those who come to him sincerely. He knows those this morning who come just going through the motions. He knows. He knows those who Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 29 and verse 13, the Lord says, come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based on merely human rules that they have been taught. God knows. He knows the heart. And this, beloved this is the distraction. This is the deception that Satan attempts and still attempts to get you distracted. This is his scheme. His desire is to distract and get you and I off message. He wanted to do this with Jesus. And so they were going to distract him with taxes. Get Jesus talking about taxes. Get Jesus talking about anything but the gospel and the kingdom of God. Take his main focus off the main thing. We're We're talking about taxes. We're talking about taxes. We're talking about taxes. Taxes. We're talking about taxes, Pastor Phil. We're talking about taxes. Not the kingdom. Not the gospel. Not the glory of God. We're talking about taxes. 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 We're talking about taxes. Taxes. But this is what the devil does. It's what the devil does. The way he does, beloved, he incites. He incites argument and debates that distract and divide and destroys. And Christians fall into this all the time. All sitting around talking about taxes. Arguing about taxes. While the most important things go by the wayside. And we find ourselves distracted with these things important things no doubt important things but in the end things that don't matter arguing about politics and politicians and who to vote for and who not to vote for arguing falling out important yes but in the end guess what it don't even matter arguing over which translations of the Bible we're going to use. ESV, NIV, King James only, New Living Translation. Important, yeah, but guess what, in the end, what, Pastor Phil? Don't matter. Arguing, arguing over music and instruments in worship. Arguing over communion, how often you ought to have it, and whether you're gonna use grape juice or wine. By the way, you need to be drinking the wine. But I'm just saying. But anyway, that's an important issue. But in the end, Pastor Phil, it don't matter. In the end, it don't matter. These are important issues, beloved, but Satan wants to make them the main issue and thus lose focus. And you do understand that you can win the argument and still lose focus. And every time you lose focus, Satan wins. Satan wins. And that's what they try to do with Jesus. They try to get Jesus to lose focus. They ask him about taxes. But more than taxes, they wanted to trip Jesus up. And they, wanted, they wanted to make Jesus look foolish. Look foolish in the eyes of the people. Or if they couldn't do that, then make him look traitorous in the eyes of the Roman government. And so they asked him a question for which there was no real right answer. Verse 22 again, is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? If he answers yes, he's in trouble with the people who didn't want to support an oppressive government. If he answers no, he's in trouble with the Roman government who would not stand for revolution or insurrection. And so what they did, they tried to put Jesus publicly in front of everybody on this horn of dilemma. He's doomed if he answers yes. He's doomed if he answers no. Like somebody asking you, have you stopped beating your husband yet? Have you stopped cheating on your test? Have you stopped stealing from your job? The assumption, beloved, is that the answer is either yes or no. The answer is either black or white. This is because we want easy answers to complex questions. But real life, doesn't usually work out that way, beloved. Our faith doesn't work that way. God and life don't always fit neatly in our theological and philosophical boxes. And they created a box, and they wanted Jesus to fit neatly in that box, but Jesus didn't fit in their box. And so when they asked Jesus, should we pay taxes, notice what Jesus said. Teacher, should we pay taxes? Jesus didn't say yes. Jesus didn't say no. Jesus said, show me the money. (laughs) Show me the money. Pastor Phil, show me the money. Show me the money. Because Jesus was not there concerned with taxes. This is not about taxes. The only reason taxes came up is because they asked. But it's not about taxes. Jesus, no matter what, was going to be keeping the main thing, the main thing. and The main thing was pointing people to the glory and honor that belongs to God for everything at all times. And so Jesus says, show me the money. Show me the money. Whose picture and title in verse twenty-four are stamped on it? And they told him, Caesar's, Caesar's. And Jesus says, simply, beloved, you think Caesar is due tribute and honor? because his image is on your money, how much more honor and glory is due to God, whose image is upon your heart, whose, whose image is stamped upon your soul. You ask me if I should pay tribute to Caesar, I'm here to tell you that Psalm 29 and verse 2 says, ascribe to the Lord the glory that is due his name. When they brought Jesus the coin, the coin had an image on it, beloved, like George Washington on the quarter or Benjamin Franklin on a $100 bill. The Roman coinage had a face and a name on it. And the name said Tiberius Caesar Augustus. It had his name. It had his imprint. It had his image. It was a reminder. It was a reminder to them that the money, though You may have it in your pocket, though you may have it in your account. It actually belongs to Caesar. It is his image. It is his money. And so Jesus says in verse 25, well then, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. But don't stop there. Make sure you give to God what belongs to God. Listen, beloved. The money you have on your person, you carry it, you trade it, you use it. But in the real sense, you only borrow it the coin actually belongs to the state. They printed it. They circulate it. They clean it. They guarantee it. And when the time comes, they get rid of it. They determine the value of it. So give to Caesar What belongs to Caesar? And what belongs to Caesar? The money. He made it. Give it to him. Give it to him. You don't have it unless he prints it. You don't use it unless he guarantees it. You don't want it unless he gives value to it. There's no one walking around with Confederate money. No one is going to the store trying to spend a $3 bill. No, beloved. You want the money Caesar made. That's what you want. You want the money Caesar printed. Because he gives it value. He made it. His images are on it. And Jesus says, show me the money because I didn't come for the image on the money. I came for the image of God. In other words, you're not going to get me distracted because I didn't come for what Caesar made. I came for what God made. I am not going to get distracted on the things that Caesar made. I'm concerned and focused on the things that God made. I am not going to get distracted on the things that bring Caesar glory. Glory. I'm on mission to promote and honor the things that bring God glory. Don't get distracted, beloved. That's what the enemy wants you to do, to get distracted and talk about taxes and the things that bring Caesar glory. And we come here every Sunday To remind each other that we are to ascribe all glory to God. The glory that is due his name. Let Caesar have his own. Caesar made the money. God made you. God made you. Caesar made the money, God made you. Isn't that the first question of the children's catechism? Isn't it clear? Isn't it helpful this morning? Question one, children's catechism. Who made you? Answer, what is it? God. God. Question one, who made you? answer God there is no greater answer beloved there is no more fundamental truth who made you God know the psalmist says in Psalm 103 know that the Lord he is God it is he who made us and we are his Fundamental truth number one. This is the truth of all truths. This is the truth that sets up all other truths. You get this truth wrong and you are set on a course to self-destruction. But if you get this truth right... That is the first step toward a life of worship and glory. Who made you? God. God made me. But then God didn't just make you. The Bible says that he made us in his image. Caesar made the money in his image. God made you and me in his. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And the image of God, the image of God is a reflection of his likeness. It's a reflection of God. Not God, but a reflection of him. We are created, beloved, to be a mirror of God. A mirror of him. We're created to mirror his character. To mirror his attributes. To mirror his mind. To mirror his heart. Dogs don't have the mind of God. Humans do. Cats don't have eternity in their hearts. You and I do. God made all things, but then only men and women. Or created in his image. And this is why what happened in the Garden of Eden is so tragic, beloved. Because when Adam and Eve sinned, in their sinning, they broke the image of God. They broke the mirror. The mirror is broken. And like a broken mirror, guess what? You can still see the image, but it's fractured. It's disjointed. It's distorted. And because the mirror is broken, there is a lack of appreciation and understanding of God's grand design. And this is where abuse and misuse of God's image comes in. Because it is broken, because we don't see it for its beauty, because it is distorted, because of sin, now, rather than glorifying God for the wonders of His image, we take His image and we disgrace it. And don't hold the image sacred. We don't respect the image. We don't respect ourselves. We don't respect others. We don't see the glory and the beauty of God in the image and therefore we don't see it in ourselves and therefore we don't see it in others. But you do know, beloved, that the image of God, the image of God is the core of our humanity. It is the fundamentals of our conduct and community. It is the golden rule What is the golden rule? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Treat others as you want to be treated. And the reason we don't do this is because we don't see the image of God. And rather than treat like we want to be treated, we abuse, we misuse, we distort, we destroy This is why abortion can be so prevalent, beloved, because we don't see the image of God. This is the core of racism. If you treated people like you wanted to be treated, if you saw in them what you see in yourself, the image of God, the beauty of God, the holiness of God, Where would racism be? Where would sexism be? Where would nationalism be? Because we don't see and adore the image of God in us. We engage in self-destructive behavior. We engage in discrimination. We engage in hate. And all of these and more, beloved, are just manifestations of our lack of understanding and appreciation of God's design of Himself in us. Well, this is why Jesus came. This is the whole point. This is why Jesus was revealed. Jesus came not for the image on the coin. Jesus came for the image of God. Jesus is the image restored. This is the main thing. This is the main thing. Y'all want to talk about taxes. No, beloved, Jesus says, I didn't come here for taxes. I came to save. I didn't come here for the glory of the money. I came for the glory of God and saving sinners. Jesus wasn't born, beloved. Jesus wasn't born, nor did he go to the cross for the image on the money. Jesus was going to the cross for the glory of God and the image of God in the world. The image of God in the world. Because Jesus came, Jesus was revealed, Jesus walked and talked and preached as the perfect, exact image of God. That's what came back into the world, beloved. When Jesus came into the world, that's what came back into the world. The image of God. Perfect. Exact. Unmarred. Unbroken. The first Adam was the image of God. It was broken. Jesus came as the second Adam as the re-image. The re-image. Re-image. And all images are now restored in him. All images now are reclaimed in him. All images now are redeemed in him. God is reclaiming his creation. He is reclaiming his image. And he is doing it in Christ. That's the main thing. He's doing it in Christ. In Christ. And if you are in Christ, you know what the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17? If you are in Christ, then you are part of that grand reclamation. You are part of that recreation. You are part of the re-imaging of God in the world. Images are being restored. Mirrors are being repaired. Minds are being renewed. Lives are being redeemed. And the glory of God is being reclaimed. Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. we about giving glory to God. That's why Brother Ed sang all those glory songs this morning. Because we have come here this morning to ascribe to the Lord the glory that is due his name. We didn't come here to talk about taxes. You thought when you read that, oh boy, Pastor's going to be talking. I ain't got time to be talking about taxes. It's about the glory of God. In the images that Christ is redeeming this morning, let us ascribe to the Lord the glory that is due his name. Glory, glory, glory to his name. Let's pray.